I don't think it's a surprise to anyone when I say that my favorite genre is fantasy, especially once romance gets involved. The problem, though, is that the genre is so big and there are so many facets to it that I have always struggled with how I can talk about romanticy on the podcast. Thankfully, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I have the perfect inn. Grab your passport and your wood sole shoes. We're going to Ireland. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! Hey, Jackie. Yes? Why don't fairies live under toadstools? Por que no? Because there's not mushroom. <laughs> than the joke but the, the joke, joke was amazing the joke was good thank you thank you very much also apologies for the audio on this one folks we are one mic down because the fairies have gotten to us and they said you guys got too cocky we take a mic away so we're sharing a microphone for this episode thank you all right as always also thank you to nopal for sponsoring this podcast and also as always a huge shout out to you the listener I hope your March is going well, and if you do anything to celebrate the luck of the Irish on this March 17th, I hope you do so safely and aren't abducted by any of the fairy folk. I do want to issue a quick update from one of our past episodes. The HarperCollins strike is officially over, and the union has reached an agreement for fairer wages and expectations, which is great. Snaps. Snaps for the union. Don't forget to still support your favorite HarperCollins authors by following them on social media for their updates and sales and all that good stuff. And while you're at it, did you know your local library probably has some socials as well? We certainly do. Go chat up your friendly local neighborhood librarian and find out where they're posting about their events and new releases. Libraries will always need the support of their patrons, and we love getting to interact with you guys however and whenever we can. Most of the time. Not during tax season. All right. As I said in the intro, I think it's no surprise to anyone who knows me or has listened to me talk about books that I love the fantasy genre, especially romantic fantasy or romanticy. In fact, in a 2022 survey, 36% of Americans said that fantasy was also their favorite genre, sliding in only behind history, short stories, and mystery. But fantasy is a huge genre, and sometimes it can be hard to pinpoint exactly what someone means when they say, oh, I read fantasy. It's not all dragons and magic and you're a wizard, Harry. Fantasy, in fact, remains one of the broadest genres of escapist literature, living happily under the umbrella of speculative fiction that Jen pinpointed in our contemporary episode. The fantasy genre is officially a type of fiction which features a plot that could not take place in the real world. Hallmarks of the genre include magic, magical beings and entities, gods and goddesses and godlike figures, mythical creatures, and strange planets or fantastical settings. Fantasy and sci-fi tend to sometimes straddle the same line, but when trying to distinguish between the two, it's important to remember the science part of sci-fi. 
technology or scientific advancements and intrigue, how humans interact with those plot devices, are key to creating a sci-fi genre. Hence why Gulliver's Travels is considered one of the first sci-fis out there, because it dealt with technology that was contemporary to the time period, and also featured time and space travel, so even though the Lilliputians and Brobdingnagians seem firmly in the fantasy genre to the modern reader. For more on sci-fi, you can go listen to our sci-fi episode number 33. Fantasy, meanwhile, is tough because it can really be anything. And that's why I've struggled to do a fantasy podcast up till now. We first broached the fantasy genre when we discussed fairy tales and retellings, which are episodes number 37 and 38. I will have those linked in the show notes if you haven't listened to those yet. But true hardcore epic fantasy with world building and magic and different races of humanoid creatures interacting and special powers and abilities, that's a tough one to get into because there are so many different areas you have to start to cover. And I think maybe that's why some people are hesitant to venture into it. I'm looking at Jen. Jen, I know you're not one to regularly pick up a fantasy book. Can I ask why? I mean, I do like some fantasy. I think it's not probably my top three pick just because I'm very, very picky about it. Sometimes I really like the world building. Sometimes I really hate the world building. Sometimes I get really frustrated with the author's take on world building. Sometimes it's like real loosey-goosey like in uh, Once Upon a Time where it just seemed like they made up the rules on the fly and absolutely none of the the rules seem to to make sense. And then there's others where it's just like, I don't like the rules in certain fantasy books. So I do enjoy a good something. Like I like an orc, you know, or a minotaur. But no, it's just for me, sometimes the world building is just like, it's just a lot to weed through. I agree. There is a lot of sorting through the weeds when it comes to fantasy. You don't have a good gardener that often. (laughs) But for as difficult as the world building or other similar reasons are for people to get into the genre, I think that's also why it's so beloved. It is, in my opinion, the epitome of escapist literature. Um, Anything is possible as long as the world building, again, holds some sort of sense and explanation. A mythology, if you will. Plus, the originality of these plots makes them consistently new and exciting, in my opinion. A lot of the same devices and creatures and characters do get reused over and over again, like we talked about in the fairy tale episodes, or like Jen just talked about with orcs, or how we talked about with monsters. Like, you see these kind of characters appearing again and again, but for a reader going into a new fantasy novel, we're confronted with this great big world ahead of us that we have no foreknowledge of, and it can take us on a great adventure. Plus, you know magic makes it really fun and if you throw spice on top of all that magic and world building and intrigue i'm sold it's a lot of fun fantasy itself as a genre has been around for thousands of years every culture has its own myths and folklore that it uses to impart lessons or carry on pieces of its history some of the oldest works of classical fiction are even fantastical stories passed on through the centuries and across countries and continents a Thousand and One Arabian Nights is where we get the story of Aladdin and Shahrazad from. Beowulf is from a Norse epic poem that's used as a foundational myth. And legends of King Arthur first arose from Welsh and Christian mythologies, but have since passed into the realm of fantasy. Today, European medieval-inspired fantasy is one of the most popular takes in Western literature, although I'm starting to see a shift in that as we start going for more own voices and BIPOC and AAPI creators, as we're starting to see a wider range of fantasy being represented, which is super fun. But for a very long time, King Arthur, dragons, knights, castles, unicorns, and their ilk have long been popular. But one of the other central tenets of this subgenre fantasy has come to be the Thay. And in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I love how that rhymes. It gets me every time. Um, In honor of St. Patrick's Day, no culture seems to be more steeped in fairy lore than the Irish. But fae and fairy lore is more than just Irish. Don't worry. You know we're going to get into it. 
Now, before we begin, you all know I love a definition, and there's a very important clarification to be had with today's episode. Today's romanticy likes to blend a lot of traits together for the fae, the fairies, fairies with an I, and the silly characters that readers and authors love so much. Fae courts will exist with supernatural creatures who live in a secret realm through the trees or below the ground. They have pointed ears and a mishmash of cultural mythos. And it's fantasy, so in honor of the genre, really anything goes. But at the same time, fae, fairies, seely, and elves are traditionally different and come from completely different cultural and historical backgrounds. So let's go ahead and dive into these different creatures and traditions and talk about some books along the way. So let's start with the fairies, the little people, the she, the fair folk, the people of the mounds, the others, the gentry, and so many other names that the Irish have taken to calling these mythical beings. Because to name them as fairies with an I or she, spelled S-I-D-H-E, it is considered terrible luck, but I will take some of that bad luck on the face today because of academia and we already have taken that bad luck because our mic quit. So, you know, fairies are at us. Fairies are part and parcel to the mythos of Ireland, so much so to the fact that a lot of foundational myths state that prior to the Gaels, or Milesians, the son of Mill, invading Ireland's shores, Ireland was ruled by a supernatural race of people, the Thuadedana, people of the goddess Danu. The Thuadei were said to have been skilled in magic, godlike beings who defeated the giant Fomorians and were worshipped as gods and the children of the goddess Danu. Early Irish mythology tells us that they came to Ireland in a mist or possibly on a dark cloud flying through the air, so to no one's surprise, there are a lot of alien believers who believe that the Thuadei were the first recorded aliens to visit planet Earth. <laughs> I will leave that for you to look into. You can go down that rabbit hole. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Yet. Um, interestingly, when Christianity came to Ireland, this myth got Christianized, and the, Thu- and the Thuadei were turned into fallen angels. So when Lucifer and the rest of hell fell from the clouds, the Thuadei were also banished. But because they didn't p- take place in Lucifer's insurrection, nor did they support God and his angels, they were banished to the mortal realm to eternally await Judgment Day. And fun fact, this is called a humorization when Christianity takes a myth and Christianizes it. The Thuadei then ru- ruled Eru, Ireland, with magic and beauty until they were also forced out. For the sons of Mill, the Milesians, the Gaels, soon came, and they defeated the Thuadei and drove the supernatural beings below the ground, beneath hills and fairy mounds where they still live today, in a separate realm with Sasquatch. You can't just say Sasquatch when I don't have the mic in front of me to be like, no, there's no Sasquatch with the fairies! He could be. There's no Sasquatch, oh my god. (laughs) But in all seriousness, (laughs) this is power dynamic here no (laughs) but in all seriousness the Thuadei were the foundation for the fairies we commonly think of today the she which is old irish coming from meaning people of the mounds are the descendants of the Thuadei and still exist today according to irish myth they are they include such common creatures as the banshee pukas selkies and even the infamous leprechaun she can look human-like and only a few of the different types of she are diminutive in stature such as the leprechaun or the brownie most Irish she do not have wings. That's actually more of a Victorian ideal, which we will get into in a minute because, of course, the Victorians. But because they are interdimensional creatures, according to the lore, they can easily conceal themselves and hide. Like Sasquatch. Oh my God! No Sasquatch! <laughs> <laughs> they are also not the kind, fun-loving fairies I feel modern Western culture likes to associate with. These are often vengeful, pernicious creatures who should be feared and respected. 
There's a popular way of looking at Irish fairy lore and she stories through an anthropological lens that the stories of the she serve as cultural warnings. Think of like yield signs or moral compasses, literally good old fashioned fairy tales to guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to guide people's actions and dictate how we associate with a lot of things like nature, our neighbors, and how we practice our cultural more. So she are not there to just be the funny little things living in flowers who sprinkle pixie dust and help children fly to Neverland. In fact, this quote-unquote flowery fairy notion came into play with the Victorians because, again, of course it was the Victorians, especially when artists like Arthur Rackham started drawing his fanciful illustrations and popularized these creatures with children's literature. Now, children's literature is important to note, and we're going to talk about that in a mini-sode coming up soon. Fairies made the jump from scary, vengeful, cultural creatures to look out for to the pucks of children's stories or fairy tales, who are still mischievous, but overall, they're just these cute little winged beings you could find in your garden. With the with the change from like these evil creatures to, oh, these cute little fairies that are going to take you, like that, that whole shift, do you think that was a religious thing or was that like just the Victorians just downplaying it and making it safe for children? I think it was very much so both a cultural shift and as a result of the Victorians because we're going to talk about uh, suppression of Ireland here in two seconds yeah yeah the Victorians Queen Victoria was known for her suppression Jesus forgot about that yeah so here's the not fun part of today's discussion folks colonization okay I'm going to be using as a little aside, I'm going to use the she and fairy with an I interchangeably for this portion, and that's because to modern English speakers, they do mean the same thing. But the word fairy we think of first comes into association with the she about 700 years ago, thanks to a humorization, and then was reinforced in the reign and colonization of Queen Elizabeth I. Anglicization and colonization also plays a strong role into why we refer to the she as fairies because during the English occupation and colonization of Ireland that began in the 12th century but really catapulted under the reign of Henry VIII it was illegal to speak Irish and to practice a lot of Irish customs and as records began to be written in Irish history really strongly for the first time in the 17th century they were written in English French and Latin the language of the king's queen and the church fast forward 300 years to Victoria and the English were still trying to suppress the Irish and honestly doing a really horrifically good job of it. Um, and so these cultural creatures, the beings that were so entrenched in Irish foundational mythos, shifted from supernatural, glorious, fearworthy she to the cute flower fairies Disney loves. So with the change in this, again, like taking the fairies from like these evil creatures to like cute and fluffy was it meant to be like an insult to the irish to be like hey look at your terrifying cultural creatures and now they're cute and fluffy or was it meant to more like defang them and make them powerless a little bit of both um i don't think there was i don't think <laughs> there was like some giant evil english overlord who was going we will put down your fairies and you will not talk about the she ever again i think it was just um as a byproduct of this kind of erasure of Irish cultural identity. Um, there was a lot of active suppression of, again, this Irish custom and Irish culture and everything like that. So, you know, again, that kind of natural byproduct. But um, I think that for the most part, it was, we're going to talk about the Fairy Queen, which is a 16th century poem with Queen Elizabeth I here in a minute. Um, and we'll talk about how that was kind of like a direct What's the word I'm looking for? Um, it oh. was a direct um, act of belittling 
the Irish and associations with the queen. Um, but for the most part, it was just like, it just happened. Mm. Yeah. Sadly. And it really has been up through probably the nineties, um, after the troubles when things have started turning around and we've started learning, uh, people in Ireland have started teaching and learning Irish again in schools, which is really awesome. But in Ireland, back to the fairies, there's no real distinction between good and bad fairies, unlike the Seely and Unseely, which we'll talk about here in a minute. All fairies can be good or bad and all need to be respected appropriately. Irish culture, as I think everybody is aware, is highly superstitious and engaging or interfering with mystical creatures is believed to directly affect one's life or home in a myriad ways. Thus, many daily actions are therefore adopted in order to appease, placate, or otherwise not antagonize the she. You should leave out milk and honey on your doorstep to give sustenance to your local fairies and appease them so they don't set your roof on fire. Never cross foot in a mushroom or fairy circle or you will be cursed. Knock on wood to ask the local sprite for luck. Leave your shoes out overnight so the cobblers can fix them and won't get up into mischief with idle hands and tools. But if you don't do these things, it's gone and bad for you and the she will make your life suck. I think you can catch on that fairies, at least the Irish fairies as I just described them, are not typically romantic figures in our modern fairy romanticies. Holly Black and Karen Marie Monning do straddle the line a little bit with their series, respectively, The Folk of the Air and Fever, which do deal with some classic fairy representations and Dwede Dana descriptions, but overwhelmingly, they're still talking about the fae, a completely different race of supernatural beings. Because yes, fae is different from fairy is different from fairy, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E. In my experience, the fae are probably the most common sort of fairy or supernatural entity regularly used in romanticy, especially in today's indie pub romanticy, um, and especially with big name authors like Sarah J. Moss and Karen Marie Monning, and in indie pub books like What Lies Beyond the Veil by Harper L. Woods and Elise Kova's best-selling Air Awakens series. Fae comes from Old French and Latin, respectively, and is derived from Latin, fata, meaning fate, often used in the sense of the three fates, the oracles who would give prophecy, and sometimes in the bad sense of fate, as an ill omen or a harbinger of doom. And that should give you an idea of where the classification of fae is going. Fae and fairy, with an I, do come from the same origin, etymologically speaking, but again, remember that in Ireland, these creatures are to be referred to more generally as she, and we only use the word fairy because of the British. So, traditionally, the Fae are said to be spirits of nature or tricksters who would play pranks on humans. They are often seen to be violent, and they do not tend to see good or evil. They're also notorious for kidnapping humans and taking them into their forest realms, often leaving changing children behind in their wake. They again look like humans, but often possess a supernatural beauty, especially in romance Rowan Whitehorn, anyone? They also use magic to glamour themselves into looking however they want or how may best trick humans. Further, they don't necessarily live underground or in a separate realm like the Irish she do. Mostly their settlements and kingdoms or courts are veiled in some way to where humans cannot enter without being escorted by the Fae. Fae mythos was popular in Europe, especially mainland Europe and France, and was often viewed through the Celtic mythology. It is important to note that Celtic does not necessarily mean Irish. The Celts were a wide-ranging cultural people that spanned Europe and Anatolia, today the Asian portion of Turkey, and were identified by similar language and cultural practices and archaeological remnants. Historically, the Celts included such groups as the Britons, the Boii, Celtiberians, Gaels, Gauls, Galici, Galatians, and the Irish. And truly, one of the only reasons we use the term Celt loosely today is because that's what the Romans, an invading force, called these locals during conquest. Celtic culture remains strongest today in places like Ireland and Brittany because of how insular and secluded from the Roman tyranny these places were. 
but back to the Fae. Between 1590 and 1596, Edmund Spencer published The Fairy Queen, an allegorical critique of Queen Elizabeth I that directly tied the understanding of fae to fairy with an I for contemporary minds. And fae and fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E, it gets really muddled, I'm sorry. Fae and fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E, can be used interchangeably, but fairy with an I is to be kind of viewed more separately. Spencer did this quite purposefully, attempting to draw the reader to conclusions between Elizabeth's rule over Ireland, who were known for their fairy culture, again, fairy with an I, By doing this, Spencer was criticizing Elizabeth's connection with Ireland and her femininity, comparing her to a fairy queen. Further, it is an anglicization of an Irish belief of the she, thus further demonstrating English superiority over Irish belief systems like we talked about a few minutes ago. In Irish, as we've already posited, the fairies were traditionally known as the she, and yet when Spencer wrote the fairy queen, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E, queen, he drew heavily on Irish fairy lore, forever forging a connection between depictions of Irish she and British fae. This Anglicization is popularized with Spencer's work, and fairy with an E and a fairy with an I and she are irrevocably linked together to British readers. Shakespeare even made use of fairies and not fae in his work, even though he goes back and forth between describing the fae and the fairies and other classifications of magical being. They all kind of get lumped together under his work. In all fairness, etymologically speaking, like I said, fairy and fairy are the exact same thing, but just really because of Middle English spelling and lack of standardization, they were used interchangeably and at different times. Also, since Irish was outlawed and really no one was writing in Irish language at this time, or for really coming centuries, fairy and fairy and she became one and the same. It is with modern day literature and definitions that we get down to brass tacks, and we have to separate between the fae of Britain and Scotland and the she of Ireland, and it's it's splitting hairs, I know, but there is a difference. Today, the Fae are used in Romanticy as a definite other, cla- uh, capitalization of other. They often live behind some sort of magical border, perhaps through a forest or a veil, and to cross into their realm means you are stuck there until you can cheat or sneak your way out. If you eat their food, drink their wine, dance to their music, you're stuck there forever. For instance, in A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss, when the character Feyre is taken to the court below the mountain, and we'll talk about fairy courts in a moment, she is instructed not to eat or drink anything or else she'll lose all sense of herself. She does this already because, well, she's been kidnapped and she wants to not remember anything and you can't blame a girl. Goblins also do tend to get drawn into this mythos with popular literature today, I think in part thanks to Bowie as the Goblin King. Mm Um, for instance, in Winter Song, which is a YA fantasy, the heroine journeys to this underground realm to save her sister who was stolen by a goblin king as a bride, but she's quickly enraptured and ensorcelled by their music and magic and has to stay there because she eats the food and listens to the music. And I'm not going to go into any more about goblins because that is a completely different mythology and they are a type of fairy, but it it gets all muddled around that area. All right, so let's move on to Seelie and Unseelie. Now, I mentioned the Scottish Fae a minute ago because the Scottish have their own version of Fae lore that we need to touch on, which is the Seelie and Unseelie courts. The Seelie and Unseelie, likewise, are another type of creature that gets lumped under Fae and fairy lore that, culturally speaking, is similar yet different. Seelie and Unseelie are Scottish fairies, and specifically refer to fairy courts that are particular to that country and that mythology. Seelie, S-E-E-L-I-E, is derived from Anglo-Saxon geselig selig, which means happy or prosperous. Thus, the Seelie court fairies are creatures of good and light and kindness, like elves, brownies, and the Dooney. This is opposed to the Unseelie, Anselig, meaning something that was ha- unhappy or wretched. So the Unseelie are the dark, the malicious, the vengeful, perhaps such creatures as the Redcaps or the Brown Man, brown man of the Mirrors. 
And a fun fact, this is also where we get the word silly from. Silly, happy, selig. Yeah. And further, the use of the word white, spelled W-I-C-H-T, is often associated with in Scottish with silly and unsealy. It was kind of like white um, was like the word for fairy, and then silly or unsealy denoted whether it was good or bad. What's especially interesting to me, and I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, if you'll indulge me, is that we don't see the first mention of Seely or Unseely, and I'm just going to say Seely from now on, until 1572, during the beginning of the witch trials, when an accused woman blames the Siriawaitis for blasting and killing a child. From there, there's really only fragmentary evidence in Scottish writings regarding these fairies. And again, most likely this is because these were Highland beliefs that were, again, thanks to British colonization and making Scottish culture illegal, wiped out a lot of Scottish custom. We have few writings, if you recall my Scottish episode, from the Scottish prior to the Scottish Enlightenment in the 18th century, and fewer still about quote-unquote pagan beliefs. And with a 16th century record making a clear association between witchcraft and the evil and the seely, it's to no one's great surprise, I think, that we have little cultural evidence for these beliefs, belief systems prior to the early modern period. What we do have is the association of good and bad courts that is persistent in Scottish mythos that has persisted in Highland beliefs. It began to be documented following the early modern period and into the modern period, in my opinion, as a lot of anthropologists and historians and ethnographers sought to document rural community myths in the Highlands of Scotland. And a lot of this traces back, interestingly enough, to the Germanic and Norse influence on Scotland from the Viking incursions in the early medieval period onwards. And this is where the elves come in. Because they apparently weren't part of this before. Yeah. And when I started this episode, before I started going to my research, I will admit, I was like, elves and fairies are completely different creatures and they shouldn't be associated together. Well, the pie is on my face because I was wrong. Uh, as it turns out, the courts of the whites in Scotland are associated with the royal courts of Norse mythology, like Elfheim, where the good fairies live. The good court, and we're kind of going into Norse mythology here for a little bit. Follow my roadmap. The good court was composed of elves whose numbers were augmented by babies who died of parental abuse, those who fell fighting in just battles, and all other good and worthy folk who, for some small reason, could not access heaven. These good creatures help humans. They provide bread to the poor and aged. They seed corn for the hardworking but unlucky and give gifts to their favorite people, especially those who themselves had helped out fairies wait, with wait, loans or gifts. So elves were humans? So, wait, sorry. So, elves were human. Like, you can't have, like, an elf baby. Yes and no. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, this is, I think, where the humorization gets the best of us because heaven gets thrown into the mix uh, and supernatural creatures can't go into heaven. Only humans can go into heaven. Okay. Yeah. So, I think that that's where it gets in there. But if you look at the old Norse mythology, they were a separate race of people, kind of like the Thuidae were a separate race of people. Um, and then they just kind of, when they moved over to Scotland and Christianity took over in the 8th and 9th centuries, it just kind of merged everything together into this muddled mess. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Legacies could have been human. Not according to Tolkien. Uh, they were different races. They did evolve from similar ancestors, but no, they're different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, the Dark Elves, and here's where my Old Norse professor is cringing at me. The Dark Elves, the Svartalfar or Dolkalfar, Dark Elves, were supernatural beings that are si said to reside in underground world of Svartalfheim. They, like the trolls, are often associated with the Dvergar, 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 the dwarves, and their home is often considered to be the same as the underground of Midgard. 
Svartalfar were so-called because they were seen as the antithesis to the good elves, the Ljosalfar, the light elves who lived in Elfheim. The term black or dark elf is used either to denote where they lived, underground, or possibly their nature, since dark elves were often described as greedy and troublesome. They were human-like, but often described as ugly and misshapen. Thus, the ranks of the Unseely Court, the dark elves, were made up of those who had given themselves over to the devil. Again, that Christianity coming in to muddle things up. They were bad men who died fighting, unmarried mothers stolen during childbirth, and unbaptized babies. (laughs) mothers stolen during like you mean they died during? yeah so like they died during childbirth okay. yeah they didn't steal while they were giving birth on no no okay. they were just stolen in the act of giving birth oh, oh, yeah okay. okay um but they had to be unmarried because you know yeah. married women who died went to anyways yeah, otherwise they're whores. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the Christ babies though are pretty bleak yeah yeah that's a big part of the devil mythology yeah. well yeah when christianity got in there yeah yeah Jeez. that's yeah. one way to get converts the wicked fairies are always ready to inflict harm and loss they might shave victims out of spite (laughs) abduct people who place themselves in their power steal goods or kill cattle with their magic they are the true villains of the stories and i think as a savvy romance reader and podcast listener you can probably guess these dark elves make for some fascinating romance fodder especially when we start delving into beauty and the beast and enemies to lovers retellings these are crazy popular in romanticy, and the fake courts are equally as popular. There is a struggle because it can be hard to find these books shelved outside of YA, I think as a lasting legacy of the Victorian fairy tales and Arthur Rackham. For a long time, fantasy, especially fantasy written by women, was associated only with children's stories and with young adult. But I really feel that thanks to some of the authors that I'm going to mention here in a minute, as well as the popularity of fae and fairy and spicy indie romances, we're starting to see more stories written in these veins. So to cap everything off, I thought I would mention some of my favorite fae, fairy, she romances out there for you guys to go check out. Because I don't think Jen has that many out there, aside from the ones, some of the ones I'm about to mention. I don't know. You didn't ask me. <laughs> I gave you the script. Yeah, I didn't look at it. That's fine. <laughs> I had, I had pop-up stuff. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I, of course, mentioned Sarah J. Moss, who has two series I would strongly recommend to anybody looking to get into this type of fantasy. First is the Throne of Glass series, which deals with fae um, and feels more like the legends of fae and fairies where they live separate from humans with their own magic and are neither good nor evil, but are still set to be feared. Um, then Sarah J. Moss has her Akatar or Court of Thrones and Roses series, which is a series that really got me back into reading fantasy a few years ago. And this one deals heavily with the idea of fake courts and looks at the Seely and Unseely dark light court in more details. I also mentioned Karen Marie Monning, who was probably the first author I ever read to mention the Tua de Dana in her Fever series and somewhat in her Highlander series. And she takes a look at the Seely and Unseely courts again and a lot of like travel between dimensions in her Highlander series. It's well, actually in her Fever series, too, now that I think about it. It reads as an urban fantasy or paranormal, like post-apocalyptic in the Fever series. And the Highlander is contemporary kind of paranormal romance, but it's set in Scotland. So, you know. The Halfling Saga by Melissa Blair is a newer indie turned bestseller about a half-fae assassin in a thoroughly fantastical world full of political intrigue and forbidden love. A Deal with the Elf King by Elise Kova is a Hades-Persephone-esque retelling about the struggle for power between human and elf kind and what happens when a human is kidnapped by the dark and mysterious elf king to be his queen. 
A River Enchanted by Rebecca Ross is a beautiful lyrical reimagining of Scottish fairy lore about spirits of wind and earth and water who are lured and enchanted by human song. And last but not least, an indie pub that I love and hope to one day get in the library is the Four Winds series by Alexandria Warwick. Book one, The North Wind, is another kind of like Hercedes Persephone retelling. Um, and it does have that idea of like traveling to another kingdom, another realm where there's magic. But it's really book two, which is a retelling of Tamlin, which is one of Scotland's oldest fairy tales. And as an honorable mention, it's not necessarily romance, but I think we'll see more romance pop up in future books in the series. And I've already talked about this one, but I love it so much. Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett is light academia that is all about a scholar who's trying to make a compendium of all the fairies in the world. And it's just a lot of fun to read, especially in the winter. I think I stumped Jen. I said that you stumped. I was just really hoping I could be like, yeah, look, I read that and I can't. You've read Nora Roberts. Yeah, but like. Really the only one that deals with fate. I'm going to put this in the middle of us. Really, the only one that deals with fairy of hers is the her new Dragon's yeah. Awakening Legacy series. I feel like Cressley Cole could have had some fae or elf kind of a thing. Yeah. I feel like if I ever read stuff like this, it's always in a magical realism setting. It's not necessarily in a fantasy world. I did read that fae king one, actually, that you didn't like that much, where he was blind until love gave him his vision back. Oh, I think I blocked that out of my memory. I, I don't remember it. It got bad after the first book, oh. but I liked the first one. Okay. There we go. I read one. There we go. Good job. Good one, job. one. <laughs> Good job. I did it. It would help if I knew the title. <laughs> We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I really haven't done like anything. Yeah. I've got like no fantasy on here. Yeah, it's not my favorite. Except for orcs. Yeah, but you know, orcs are like a weird, mo- like they're more of a monster romance, I think, that's yeah. what they've moved into. Like they're definitely fantasy, obviously they're fantasy, but. Um, but like it's a different aesthetic, I yeah. think, the monster romance versus the fantasy. Yeah. We're also just talking about fairies in this one, and they are not a type of fairy. Fair enough. Yeah, I feel like, actually, I have read a lot of fae in fan fiction, where they'll take the character and turn them into fae. So, ha, <laughs> Interesting. Well, yes. maybe I'll have Jen link some of her favorite fanfics in oh the God, show they're notes. They're so old. They're probably not good anymore. And that does bring us to an end of this little jaunt into the fantastical world under the hill with the fairies and the fae and the she. Jen, what are we going to do next time? Yeah. yeah, so I realized after talking to a friend, we really only talk about romance in the scope of books. So I want to talk about it in the form of things like audiobooks, in terms of board games, video games, these other different kinds of ways that people explore romance. So I probably will not do audio next time just because I need time to listen to an audio but i am asking you our beloved romance nerds if you guys like audio please email us at ragingromantics at noble.org let me know what i should listen to as my very first audiobook it's your first it's my first audiobook i've never listened to an audiobook and then also if you would also indulge me let me know how i should listen to it so is it something where like i should get some errands should i go on a hike should i just like lay out on my my bed with some candles and just relax i have opinions on this well you better tell me before the romance nerds do so let me know i don't think it'll be my next one just because i i want to wait for your responses but i definitely will be talking i think about like the video games board games that people have made based off romance so not necessarily the books we've explored but They've been doing, like, romance board games since the 1900s. Yeah. So, like, when we talked about all that courting the Paulers, this is, like, one of the games they were doing. We have one last thing we have to do, though. Yeah. The books that we just read. Woo! 
All right, Jen, what have you just finished reading? So last night, I make sure I read now to, to so I have something cool to talk about. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know if I would have picked this up, but I'm glad I picked it up. It is called Stitches by David Smalls. If you have heard that name before, it's probably because he is a very famous children's illustrator. Yeah, he has won the Caldecott Award, which is one of the finest awards children illustrators can get. He's done like 40 books. He is a big deal. He's done things like So You Want to Be President, The Library, The Gardener. Like you would recognize his style probably if you are a parent or a librarian because you have to deal a lot with children's books. He did a memoir of his childhood growing up back from when he had cancer in his throat. And rather than his parents telling him, they just said, you know, it's just like a normal surgery. We're just getting rid of that little little gunk in your throat. And he wakes up and his voice is gone because they actually took out his vocal cords. So he does eventually get his voice back after a couple of years, but it's kind of just like a whisper. And it's just kind of this look at his very uh, dysfunctional family life and how he kind of reacted to this crazy life change of, I I can't even imagine of like, wake, like being all blah, 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 like I normally am. And then what would I do with my life if I can't talk? And I don't even, I don't even have time to deal with it or realize it. Um, It's a lot. So it was really interesting. The whole artwork is really beautiful. He kind of presents it as almost like this movie because he does a lot of these close-up frame-by-frames of these items. Just really interesting. Did he learn sign during that time? No. No. So so this happened like 50s, 60s. It was not like real progressive. So the parents... (laughs) <laughs> they didn't really do much for him I mean he I was kind of wondering about that if they would like give him paper have him like write stuff or no there's actually a couple parts in the book where it's like why don't you speak up you know like they forgot or something that they basically like oh my God. like made him nonverbal, you know and he could talk a little bit and as he got older he could get back a whisper but for a while all he could really do was Ugh. wow mm-hmm. If your child has cancer, first off, we are so sorry, but please also let them know what's going on and don't just tell them they're going in for a surgery. And he was 14 is the thing. Like I read the, I read the summary and I'm like, oh, maybe he was really young and they were just worried about his reaction, but he was a teenager when this happened. So do you want to hear a funny story? Okay. As levity against that, um, we had a Jack Russell Terrier growing up that was so bad about about barking. He would bark until he like literally made his throat bloody. So the vet was like, "Okay, well, there's this procedure we can do where we'll cut his vocal cords so that he can't bark anymore, and it'll be or like he'll have like a raspy bark and it'll be fine." The vocal cords grew back in two months. <laughs> yeah, this dog just wow. lived to like be against everybody i loved him he hated my dad hated him so you know but you know it's all good it's all good anyways the book i just read i just finished reading hellbent by lee bardugo which is second in her ninth house series and it is talking about fantasy i'm on a fantasy kick right now nobody is surprised um it is the follow-up to ninth house and it is set at yale it's a contemporary like paranormal fantasy and it's about magic societies at yale and what happens when magic goes wrong and a portal to hell opens yeah, it's a lot of fun. But that brings us to an end of this short episode. We did it! I am so surprised. We did it! We got to get rid of the second mic all the time. <laughs> it's so sad, though. It's, it's so awkward. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's just like, how are we supposed to talk? But anyways, thank you guys for sticking with us. We appreciate you. Um, and go listen to those other episodes that we linked if you haven't listened to them already. Because they're pretty good episodes. But anyways, we will see you next time. Or you will hear us next time. I don't know what I'm saying at this point. Jen, what do we always say? Rage on! Bye, guys.
this is really hard to like <laughs> shift it. 